2: My default always throughout my career is and as dumb and simple as it sounds is to just be yourself. And that wasn't great. That was I should have been someone else. That was <laughs> My message to young talk show hosts is don't be yourself.
0: That voice, of course, belongs to the late-night TV star Jimmy Kimmel. I'm Bill Carter, and I've been interested in late night for a long time. Long enough to write two books about it
3: broadcasting company presents tonight starring steve allen
0: when i was really young i began by listening to late night shows from a bedroom down the hall in my house in brooklyn my dad would be up late watching and laughing i can still hear that laughter Dad was a big fan of Steve Allen, who started the whole thing on NBC's Tonight Show in the 1950s. Steve Allen has had a huge influence on all the late night hosts who followed, especially with the wild stunts he used to try, like diving into a tub of jello. Hosts continued doing stuff like that. David Letterman once famously jumped against a wall wearing a Velcro suit. Dad got a lot of laughs out of things like Alan covering himself in tea bags and jumping into a pool. Then he got a different kind of laugh from the next Tonight host, Jack Parr, who added conversation and wit.
1: You know how it is in Hollywood? One day you're putting your footprints in cement, the next day you're back mixing it.
0: And then came the king. Yeah.
4: When I was very, very young, my first memories are watching Johnny Carson.
0: That's the voice of one of TV's latest and freshest late night hosts, Amber Ruffin.
4: And him having the coolest delivery I've ever seen.
3: You know, this was a year in which America spent $200 billion on defense, and that was just for condoms.
4: I, like, that coolness is unmatched.
0: Amber is totally right about Carson's supreme presence as the coolest dude in the room. But he had something much more unequaled, star power. When I was finally old enough to watch late night shows, Johnny Carson was the biggest star in television and nobody else was close. Every single celebrity in entertainment and politics and sports appeared on The Tonight Show with Carson. He had a regular gig in Vegas. He hosted the Oscars. He had his own clothing line. Carson was gigantic. People took cues on news events and political candidates from his monologues. What Johnny said the night before kicked off the phenomenon of water cooler talk.
2: There are these rituals every now and then that Americans all gather around. And Johnny Carson was the guy.
0: Conan O'Brien has it right. Johnny Carson was the guy. He made late-night TV a genre unto itself. Topical monologue, broad comedy sketches, celebrity talk, music, and variety performances. It was a ritual, and it united a big country. Almost everybody watched late-night, at least some of the time. The experience created bonds not possible anywhere else in entertainment or culture. The late-night host was invited into millions of homes to say good night. As Carson himself once summed it up, these shows are about the person behind the desk. If you were a fan of late-night, you know Johnny was right. I'm Bill Carter. Welcome to Behind the Desk. The story of Late Night. We're taking a long look into the engine that makes it all run. The host.
2: What I tried to focus on is, can I put together one good show from start to finish? And I know that sounds kind of funny, but that, but really it's hard to do, to put together a show that is solid from the beginning all the way to the end. And once I was able to kind of do that, Is like, okay, can I do this twice in in one week? And, you know, can we get that number up over the course of, of years, it turned out?
0: Now, you might be one of those people who think, what is the big deal? That doesn't look hard, especially for the host. He has this big staff, all kinds of writers and producers, and they write jokes on big cards, which he walks out and reads. And then basks in the laughs. Then he walks over, sits at a desk, chats with a few stars, introduces some dude with a guitar, and then he says, Good night, everybody. I mean, you know, anybody could do that. Well, if you do think that, you actually have no clue what goes into beginning from absolute scratch and ending with a finished, funny hour of entertainment five nights a week. And by the way, don't go around telling anybody how easy it looks because you'll never get a job on one of these shows. Yeah, you need to be able to tell jokes. But as Jimmy Brogan explains, that's just the start. Well,
5: it's good if you can do a monologue. I mean, it's nice. I mean, you saw that Jimmy Kimmel kind of had to learn to do the monologue when he started.
0: Jimmy Brogan first broke into the business as a stand up, he made it to the pinnacle. When he scored an appearance on tonight with the great and powerful Carson, the absolute master of the stand-up monologue. Jimmy then spent a good chunk of his career as the head writer of the monologue for another long running host, Jay Leno. Jay could, as Seinfeld says, he could muscle a
5: joke like like no one else. He could just raise
0: his voice and hit a hit a joke. That's right,
5: right. yeah. (laughs) Yeah something, yeah. I mean, Jay a really much better performer.
4: Comedically, I'm very affected by having grown up with Jay Leno because the way he tells a joke is a big swing.
0: He was so good as a stand-up performer that even young kids like Amber Ruffin, who liked comedy, could appreciate the go-for-broke chops of Jay Leno.
4: Jay Leno friggin' loves telling jokes. He loves the good parts of it, and he loves the bad parts of it. And just be like... I don't need your laugh. Here is the next joke. It's kind of like gangster in a way. Like, it, I mean, it makes me feel really proud because it's a brave thing to do. It feels bad when you tell a joke and people don't laugh. It feels bad. But to move on to the next thing is pretty cool.
5: So for Jay or for Letterman, they could do the monologue part, but they both had to learn how to do the interview
0: part. Okay, so the interviews, again... Not as easy as it looks. The hosts who are good at it not only set up the guests to get laughs, they're also able to make the audience feel like they're hanging with the smart people at a party in the village. Nobody in late night has been better at the talk part of the talk show than Dick
4: Cavett. Say your name, honey.
0: Hold, hold a second. Uh, Dick Cavett or Richard A. Cavett. Uh, fantastic. And I'm Bill Carter or William J. Carter. Cavett had a memorable six-year run on ABC beginning in 1968. Before that, Dick worked for both Jack Parr and Johnny Carson. His writing was what got him noticed by Parr. Cavett's jokes stood out because they were really smart but too funny to be dismissed as intellectual. Like this one, one of his most famous jokes. Non-comics should never try this at home, but here goes anyway. In New York, they have a thing about combination ethnic restaurants, like French-Japanese. There's even a new Chinese-German restaurant. The food is great, but an hour later, you're hungry for power. Okay, I'm not going to challenge Dick in terms of delivery. But smart jokes like that are what got Cavett hired. And Jack Parr became a mentor for Dick Cavett.
3: You may have heard about the the strange phone call I got from Jack Parr. And he said, kid, you're going to do this show. Don't do interviews. And I gulped. What do I do? Read poetry to them or what? He said, no, 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 interviews, that's Q&A, and what's your favorite this, and David Frost falling asleep over his clipboard, and just make it a conversation, and I guess I knew what he meant by that time, but hearing Jack say it, I realized exactly what he meant. I used to marvel at how Jack would have notes on a guest that were quite good, but he could drop them if the talk started flowing, and uh, we could save them for the next time the guest was on.
0: Par's advice was outstanding for a young host like Cavett, who was about to go head-to-head with Carson. Nobody could ever compete with Carson on monologue, but Cavett had extraordinary skill at conversation. He was so good at it, he was able to book guests usually not seen anywhere on TV. People like George Harrison, Muhammad Ali, Marlon Brando, Katherine Hepburn, and Jimi Hendrix. Audiences and guests loved how Dick Cavett could talk. He had three sessions with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Uh,
3: do, do you have my kind of show uh,
1: in, in all yeah.
3: over the world? Uh, have yeah, been
1: everywhere. They're not quite as good, you know. Yeah.
3: They what? They're not
6: quite as good in England at uh, yeah. repartee, you know. Why is
7: this? Well, they're, I they're more uh, inhibited. <laughs>
0: So, comedy and conversation, what else does a good late-night host need? We'll be back with that and more on Behind the Desk after a short break.
1: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like.
0: that is what people respond to, you know? They hang with who they like. Byron Allen's mom had a job at NBC's Burbank Studios, so he got unusual access to the man he admired most in the world, Johnny Carson. Uh, He's still a high school student,
3: just turned 18, but he'd been working out at the improvisation for the past two years. Now, we originally offered Byron a shot on The Tonight Show last February, and he turned it down. He said he couldn't make it that night. Because he had to do his homework. True story.
0: Before he got that shot with Carson as a stand-up, Byron would chat with Johnny in the studio parking lot and then watch the shows as they were being taped. First-hand exposure to what makes a great host. And I, I picked that up as a kid when I would stand there in the wings and I would watch Johnny
5: Carson and Bob Hope. And I would say, you know, these guys, I've heard funnier and I've listened to funnier, a lot funnier, but they are the most
0: likable. You can't compare Johnny Carson's dominance in late night to anything in contemporary television in terms of popularity. It was like an NFL wildcard game combined with the finale of The Bachelor. When a novelty singer named Tiny Tim staged his wedding on Carson's show, 40 million people watched. That's bigger than the population of Poland. Carson's mass appeal presented a gut-wrenching dilemma for NBC. Who was ever going to succeed a star this big? And what would be the right time to make such a move? The timing started to become a pressing issue when a new contender appeared on the scene suddenly in 1989.
5: This is interesting because a, a reporter asked me this morning. I was sitting talking to this reporter. She said, "Well, you're considered the hip late night talk show, you know." It's, it's, you know. A
0: comic named Arsenio Hall was emerging as the first breakout black host in late night.
5: She says, well, "What makes your show so hip?" You know. And first of all, you got to keep a public enemy cassette in your car. That's really important. You know. <laughs> you gotta, you
0: know.
4: Arsenio comes along and we are all allowed to stay up and watch Arsenio Hall.
0: Amber Ruffin has emerged as another breakout black voice in the world of late night. She remembered what the nightly presence of a star like Arsenio Hall meant to young people of color in America.
4: If you're a little black kid and Arsenio Hall exists... You you got to get a taste of it just to see that it was possible. Like it, I remember watching our senior hall and being like, "This feels so weird," uh, and then it was for you, you know. And all the jokes he told, you got. I guess it wasn't the first time I felt seen as a little black kid, but it was certainly one of the heavier times where it was like. This is comedy, it's for you. I'm thinking of you when I'm telling this
0: joke. That sort of impact is hugely rare and hugely valuable. Arsenio's syndicated late night show began to pull in lots of younger and yes, hipper viewers. The kind that advertisers love. That sharply increased the stomach churning at NBC over the question of identifying Carson's true heir. Contenders did emerge. David Letterman was so promising, NBC gave him a late-night show every night after Carson. And Johnny started hinting at his own preference.
3: Uh, I was just thinking, if I was unable to do this show, I was trying to figure out the proper succession. You know, I, the yeah, I think it goes... Uh, David Letterman, General Alexander Higg. (laughs) Uh, Or is it Letterman, Tip O'Neill, then Alexander Higg?
0: But the drama had only started. Jay Leno was making a name for himself on, of all places, Letterman's show. Jay did so well on with Dave that NBC made him Carson's regular guest host. Now... NBC had two good choices and no good options. Whomever NBC didn't pick was sure to become the strongest rival that The Tonight Show had ever faced. In the end, NBC picked the company man, Jay, over the utterly non-company man, Dave. NBC believed that Jay was the more likable host, But there are other words for likable, like
7: magnetic. I have met two people in my life that actually have that crazy, I don't know what it is, energy that just pulls people in against their wills. And those two people are Bill Clinton and David Letterman.
0: Madeline Smithberg should be more famous. She is the co-creator of the Daily Show. She hired Jon Stewart to host that show. Before any of that, a young Smithberg caught one Letterman show, just one, and vowed she would work for that guy. She did, as a segment producer. He did not disappoint.
7: Dave, there—you couldn't help it. You, it, there were—it wasn't a cult, but there definitely were cult-like. Elements where just everybody really wanted his love and his respect and his admiration. And I would sit at my desk on my manual. No, it was an electric typewriter, which is somewhere between, you know, the printing press and an iPhone. But my back would be toward the door. And all of a sudden, I would feel all the hair on my arms stand up and I would turn around and Dave would be in my doorway and he would say what are you doing Madeline and I would just English would fail me I would be like right in my segment (laughs) and he had that power over everybody I mean he could go into my mother's assisted living right now and spray coronavirus on her and I would would (laughs) forgive him
0: You didn't have to work for Letterman to be caught up in that magnetism. Hordes of his fans felt it. Many eventually got into comedy because of him. Jimmy Kimmel has made no secret of the impact Dave had on his life.
2: On my 16th birthday, my mom made me a Late Night with David Letterman cake and had a Letterman jacket that said Late Night with David Letterman, like the ones Dave wore on the show made for me. And I was thrilled with that. And then when I got my driver's license, I had, I got a late night license plate. I got a vanity plate. I remember being at the DMV and the woman hands me the plate and she goes, you like Letterman, huh? And I was like, you know, you know the show? And she goes, you think you're the only one that watches it?
0: The first time Jimmy told me that story, it was a week before his ABC late night show premiered in 2003. I was writing a piece for The New York Times about this new late-night entry, and I spent the week hanging around Jimmy's offices. He was a nervous wreck, but always a generous host. That's not a trait that necessarily comes easily to late-night stars, but it came naturally to Jimmy. Still does.
2: Frankly, I thought a talk show host should be David Letterman, but I knew that I couldn't beat David Letterman, even if that would have been the right thing to do.
0: When we talked, Jimmy was working hard to put on shows from his home during the coronavirus quarantine. He was able to laugh about those early days, now surrounded by other challenges. Two little ones.
2: Um, <laughs> sorry, I got all. A lot of nonsense going on over here. It's like nap time, so uh, no. time for misbehavior. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go in the bedroom so that uh, we are not.
0: It was a bit quieter back inside Jimmy's bedroom. I asked him whether he felt, as I did 18 years ago, that hiring him was a high-risk play for ABC. So you're starting, and you, you don't have the experience, and the show, the network doesn't really know what you're going to do. It really was just a leap in the dark, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it was, it was a, for sure a leap in the dark. The guy who hired me, Lloyd Braun, great guy. Lloyd was concerned about probably 500 different things, and he wanted us to tighten, tighten up the ship. And my response was, as it always was in every job I've ever had, is to do the opposite of what I, I'm asked. And instead of tightening up the ship, I got drunk on the air that night intentionally.
0: So what, if you've learned something about the job, is there some quality that you would say is the thing that a, 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 a late night talk show host really needs?
2: I think you have to be, it's like pushing a rock up a hill in a lot of ways. And sometimes you have setbacks and sometimes you get a little boost. Being nervous doesn't help you. so. The more you do it, the more reps you get, the better, in general, the better you are at it. And you just kind of have to try to hit a seven every night. And that's maybe, this. if there is a secret, maybe that's it. Because you're not going to get too many tens, and hopefully you're going to get fewer twos.
0: Is there a certain thing you have to say, I got to shrug off the bad ones and and the good ones at the same time?
2: The thing that really kills you is it's like, when you get a 75-mile-an-hour pitch right down the middle and you know you should hit it out of the park and you foul it off or or worse, and that that's where it really hurts when you have an opportunity to be great and you miss it. It probably works out better more times than... Uh, then it goes south. But still to this day, like when I have a a joke or a bit that I I feel strongly about, I know going down the stairs, I think like, oh, this is going to be good. This will be funny. And then it isn't. That's a killer. That's the kind of thing you think about all weekend.
0: Being able to shrug off the missed opportunities as well as the bumps on the ride is also a necessity. Jimmy Fallon, who has encountered it all, recognizes that it goes with the territory, all the ups and downs. I like riding the waves and and really experiencing all of it. For Jimmy Fallon, perspective has become an idea to embrace. He has been a late-night host since 2009, first on NBC's Late Night show, where he succeeded Conan O'Brien. Then he took over The Tonight Show from Jay Leno in 2014. Jimmy says... He's learned not every show works, not every bit works. But the bottom line is, he loves the gig.
5: My strengths are Saturday Night Live, where I started as an impressionist. So I do impressions, I sing, I play guitar. I mean, I look back now, we did so many bad ideas and things, but it was so much fun. I I can't tell you how much I love it. Every single day is something different. Now, I mean, if I go to Italy, or if I go to London, or Australia, or... You know, people know the show. They know the bits.
0: It's insane. One thing every late-night show needs is a signature bit, a repeatable, reliable comedy segment, like Karnak the Magnificent for Carson or the Top Ten list for Letterman. Leno had his headlines. Stephen Colbert had Real News Tonight. But it took some time to find one bit that could turn on some lights for Jimmy Kimmel Live. And then it happened, sort of by accident. All right, tell me about Matt Damon and how that happened.
2: Well, Matt Damon is, um, I guess you could call him an actor. Some do, I don't. (laughs) Um, Early on in the show, there were a lot of, our guests were mostly bad. Occasionally we'd have a good one and we didn't know how it happened. (laughs) Every once in a while, a George Clooney would pop up or a, a Dwayne Johnson, and we couldn't figure it out. But um, most of the guests were like reality show stars. And one night, it was really bad. I mean, it was like a real housewife or something like that and um, and uh, some guy I didn't like. And I'm just standing in front of the camera at the end of the night about to introduce the band. And I thanked the guests, and I said, apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time for him. And uh, one of our... Co-executive producers Jason Schrift was... Uh, standing next to me, as he always did. And he, he doubled over laughing when I said it. And I just did it every night to amuse Jason. And <laughs> eventually it became a thing. Matt Damon, apologies, ran out of time. Apologies to Matt Damon, ran out of time. Today. Apologies to Matt Damon. He had a baby today, so it really was the wrong thing to do to bump him, but we had to. <laughs> and we'd done it for like a few weeks, and people started mentioning it to Matt Damon, and he was confused. I'm not sure he even knew who I was. And, uh, and his, but he thought it was funny. And, uh, his publicist, uh, called us, Jen Allen. She said, uh, Matt thinks that's funny. He wants you to keep doing it. (laughs) I was like, all right, I guess we'll keep doing it.
0: Okay. Now Matt Damon thinks the bit is funny. Maybe he'll play along.
2: And then for my 40th birthday, my ex-girlfriend, Sarah Silverman, Uh, With my cousin Sal and one of our writers, Tony Barbieri, they came up with this idea for the I'm effing Matt Damon video. That changed everything. Celebrities suddenly wanted to be on the show. We didn't have to ask them to be on the show. They would sometimes ask us, which had never happened before.
0: The Damon videos were outrageous, which is the essence of great late night TV. They were also... A breakthrough.
2: And we followed it with the I'm effing Ben Affleck video. Every publicist wanted their client to be in uh, what we now call a viral video. But it was really that Matt Damon video was the first late night viral video.
0: They were seen millions of times on YouTube and other places online. Of course, everybody else started doing them, from Jimmy Fallon's mom dancing to James Corden's carpool karaoke. Now, the host has to find time to shoot these videos, which can involve music, choreography, costumes, and lots of editing. And oh yeah, every day there's still a regular show to make.
2: My day, I, um, well... Our son, Billy, wakes us up very early in the morning, (laughs) usually right at 6.38. I get in the morning at around nine o'clock, I get jokes from the writing staff. I get jokes and bit ideas. And that's like a 40-page document. And I kind of mow through that. I go through it on email and I whittle it down to three or four pages. I send it back. I take a shower. I drive into work. We have our, our segment producers meeting. I go to rehearsal, I come back, we refine the material that we've written, we write additional jokes for the topics of the day, and then Donald Trump goes on CNN and we have to start all over and do the whole thing over again. (laughs) You know, I'm like a prostitute at this point. Uh, It's like, have your way with me, and we'll be done in an hour.
0: Most late night hosts will tell you, the job is a beast. A beast that spits money, yes but a beast that also eats up everything in its path, especially hosts. That's why many of them, like the guys on The Daily Show, work four nights a week, not five. That was also why Carson used the power of his popularity to take an ever-increasing number of weeks off. Then he started taking every Monday off. Jay Leno was the exception to all this, He wanted to work so much, he several times asked NBC to hire a backup writing staff who could supply the jokes for the eight weeks when the rest of the staff took off. Then Jay could work every week and never take a vacation. True story. Having your name on a marquee on Broadway or on a big banner outside a Hollywood studio can be a thrill. It can also get into your head and kick your psyche around a bit.
6: I refer to it as the commodification of the self. You take yourself and you make yourself a commodity. And that's a dangerous thing to do. That's a psychically dangerous thing to do.
0: Andy Richter has been a departure from the prototype late-night sidekick embodied by the great Ed McMahon of The Tonight Show. Andy started as a writer, and he's always had a full share of the comedy on Conan's shows. He also has a lot of insights into the personalities and peculiarities of late-night hosts. That's
6: a dangerous thing to do in terms of your relationships and your family, because when the line between what's for sale and what's for you is becomes blurred, it can get really unhealthy, basically, um, and I think. That everybody that does this job has to kind of deal with that. And everybody, everybody, I don't care who you are, if you're the centerpiece of something like this and you don't have somebody you trust that you can do with on every step of the way, turn to them and go, is this good? Is this funny? Should we do this? Which is kind of what I am for Conan. You're you're going to be in trouble because yeah. you need somebody who can tell you no, don't do that, or yes, you have to do this. Don't be scared, do this. It's going to be great, you know. Yeah, no, I, I think or, that's critical. Yeah, or this thing might you know this might bomb, but still, it'll be yeah, fun. Do it anyway. Right.
0: Every show better have an Andy Richter, someone who has the position and the guts to tell the host what he needs to hear, because late night hosts. Our public figures and their foibles are on display for the world and the media to chew over. They have been known to make mistakes, sometimes potentially calamitous ones. David Letterman famously became enmeshed in a blackmail scandal that led to the revelation of his affair with his personal assistant. Three hosts, Carson, Jimmy Kimmel, and Jimmy Fallon, all somehow thought that comedy bits with them in blackface did not cross over from edgy to offensive. And they were wrong. To their credit, both Jimmys acknowledged their insensitivity and apologized sincerely. So it's not a job to be taken by the faint of heart or the weak of Constitution.
6: There is the other aspect of being a talk show host is that you have to be comfortable with an organization on your back.
0: Along with choosing every joke and comedy bit, successful hosts make the final call on all the big decisions, like who the band's leader is gonna be and when to stand up to a network that decides it's time to interfere. No act of interference in late night history reverberated quite as much as when NBC censors decided the nation would not be allowed to hear a certain joke on The Tonight Show. This was well past the kiddies' bedtime, of course, and it was 1960. Many of the people watching at home had slogged their way through France and Iwo Jima. Still, the joke was about a toilet. Actually, the reference was to a WC, and NBC refused to let Jack Parr tell it. Dick Cavett was on the show's staff, and he remembers the massive mistake NBC made in messing with a dangerous late-night host.
3: Jack had one of the strangest neuroses and entertaining ones in that danger quality in his
0: personality. The show was broadcast that night with the joke cut out. The next night, Parr arrived raging. He worked himself up close to an emotional breakdown as he described this insult. And then, 18 minutes into a 90-minute show, he stood up behind his desk, about to make the most famous mid-show walk-off ever seen on TV.
3: I'm leaving The Tonight Show.
0: Gasps of shock were heard all the way from 30 Rock to 90210. He wasn't really going to do this. Oh, yes, he was.
3: I believe I was let down by this network at a time when I could have used their help.
0: <laughs> Striding stiffly like a mechanical man, Jack Parr walked across the stage and out.
3: I think all Great actors have it. Uh you just don't know what they might do next. And Jack certainly you didn't, especially when it included walking off the show live and going to where would he go, Hong Kong or somewhere?
0: <laughs> that that uh, was the story that he went to Hong Kong, yeah. Parr never confirmed he was in Hong Kong. He may have been in Connecticut, hiding out. When he finally returned to the air, Parr knew how to milk the publicity for big laughs.
3: Leaving the show was, uh, for me, a childish, perhaps an emotional moment. I am guilty of such actions in the past and will perhaps be again. I am uh, totally unable to hide what I feel. It is not an asset in show business. I went to Japan and I took uh, harikiri lessons.
0: Jack Parr had so much leverage in 1960 that he could toy with NBC like that and still come back on the air. Not every late-night host has such leverage. Sometimes, especially when they are new and struggling, they have none at all. No host had less experience when he started than Conan O'Brien because he had zero.
5: I've been in show business now 45 seconds, and this is the nicest reception I ever had. (laughs) Thank
7: you
0: very much. NBC was on Conan's case relentlessly in his early weeks. Robert Smigel, the voice and the hand behind Triumph, the insult comic dog, was Conan's first head writer.
5: Remember that we actually got very good reviews the first week, and a lot of his nervous energy was fortified by his absolute glee and excitement of being a late night host he he didn't hide that at all and you know i look back you know they have the first show ever online and conan's really just he's he's jittery but he's so charmingly excited about having the job that it's very infectious but that wore
0: off after a week (laughs) The incoming from the network and the press was truly intense. Conan tried to hide from it once by literally crawling under his desk.
5: Oh, I remember sharing one moment with him where he was just like, "I just, I don't want to be a trivial pursuit answer, like who followed David Letterman, and you know, for six <laughs> months, six weeks." <laughs> yes, yeah. you get the you get the dream, but then if it doesn't work out, dear Lord.
0: I told you it wasn't all sunshine and red carpets. We'll hear about some of the eccentricities of being a late-night host here on Behind the Desk after another short message. Conan O'Brien didn't wilt under the pressure. He got stronger. But what else can the pressure bring out in a late-night host? Some quirkiness, maybe? Madeline Smithberg got a crash course in that during her days with David Letterman.
7: I believe that genius of any kind always comes with some eccentricity, attached to it. I think that if you knew Edison, the guy was weird. Um, Leonardo da Vinci had a lot of quirks. You just hear more of things that he did. You don't hear about those quirks because they didn't have media then. So I think that Dave is brilliant and also sort of fabulously quirky. He He had rituals. But one of the rituals was cologne time. He would dump an entire bottle of uh, Roger Gallet 7-Eleven cologne onto the rug in his office. and <laughs> to was, the rug? Yeah. And it was somebody's job to make sure that that cologne was in stock. And then there would be things that he would have to eat. So for a long time, it was pineapple. There were interns on the show whose only job was to cut the pineapple. And these interns started getting really bad, like, rashes on their fingers. <laughs> so finally, we had to get gloves for the pineapple interns.
0: The Letterman staff had no choice. Dave's obsessions and rituals became part of the show's state of mind.
7: Oh, oh, Hershey bars. Okay. Oh, Hershey bars, yeah. Lori Diamond, who was David's was David's assistant for many years, she says, uh, her day could be destroyed, but what was called a waxy Hershey bar. If uh, he were to open the Hershey bar, now here's her dilemma. She couldn't open them for him because he wouldn't touch them if she'd touched them. So she just had to kind of divine that it was a non-waxy... Hershey bar. And so for a long time, she was getting shipments from Hershey, Pennsylvania and had a contact there who would, you know, guarantee no waxiness. Cause if it was waxy, (laughs) the rest of her day was not going to go well. And so she wanted to avoid waxy at all costs. Well, I have to ask you
0: to clarify something. I get the pineapple, I get the chocolate bars.
7: Why did he dump a bottle of cologne on the floor? It was just a funny ritual that he did once and had a good show that night, and so it it stuck.
0: No other show specialized in quirkiness like The Letterman Show once did. Jay Leno had that weird obsession with working constantly. The staff knew Carson in the early years could be unpleasant after a few drinks, but nobody else engaged in ritual carpet dousing. Madeline noticed a distinct change with her next host a guy named John Stewart
7: John didn't have eccentricity like that John was the most down to earth not needy you know could subsist on big quarter pounder with cheese you know had to own two pairs of pants and that was his sort of eccentricity was being non eccentric maybe Stewart started something
0: all of the current hosts seem very sound of mind. So much so that their staffs actually regard them as normal. Jen Flans was the executive producer of The Daily Show under Jon Stewart and still is under his successor, Trevor Noah.
6: I was a I was a fan of Trevor. I had seen him do stand-up. And then when we were casting for correspondence, we showed him the first joke of Trevor's Letterman set. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. shut it off, shut it, we're, we're good, that guy's, get him, that, get him, he's gonna, he's gonna take my chair one day. One, we one
0: like, joke? What? Seriously?
6: And then he walked out of the room, and we were all like, no, what did that mean? Is he leaving? And then when John told us he was leaving, it really was like, who'd be fresh, you know? Who's not gonna cover the stories exactly how John would cover the story? Like, anybody that was trying to do John was gonna be a watered-down version of John, You don't want that. You want like a completely fresh perspective. So here was this young, millennial, um, mixed race, international host.
1: It it made perfect sense to me.
0: Then there's Seth Meyers, the third host to lead the show that David Letterman created at 1230 a.m. on NBC.
4: Seth sets an incredible
0: tone for the show. Amber Ruffin's first late night job was as a writer for Seth Meyers. She also performed a regular segment with him called Jokes Seth Can't Tell, which obviously meant she got the laughs.
4: He has this weird thing where even though he's a television show host, he doesn't crave a butt-ton of attention. You know what I mean? Like He's not running around, hamming it up. When When you write something for yourself, he doesn't care that he's not in it. His only goal is laughs. So no one's ever in a hurry. He's never running down the hallway in a rush to blah, blah, blue. He is just a laid back, chill guy. And that behavior is what everyone is taking their cues from. And, you know, we just have a calm time.
0: We've covered a lot of host qualities. Likeable, charismatic, dangerous... Intelligent, a little nutty, and even what passes in TV for normal. But there's more, as Andy Richter knows.
6: Stephen Colbert is is another one that I think is a little unique.
0: Stephen Colbert, after his great success on the Colbert Report, moved over to CBS, where he succeeded David Letterman on The Late Show. And he eventually climbed to the top of the ratings in Late Night.
6: He came to that in a very circuitous route and then largely from playing the character character. of a host of, you know, of like a Fox show. So it was, it is kind of different. Like I think he's a little bit of a different kind of grandfather. Although he's now, he
0: now does a great monologue. Oh, he's, no, he's 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 really good at it. He's an immensely
6: talented person. Super, always has been. And I mean, and it's actually kind of a shame that he doesn't get to act as much. No, you know, he's terrific. No, because he's fantastic.
0: Stephen Colbert, yes, a gifted performer. But Andy knows something about hosting that has been excluded.
6: Well, I mean, there's still the simplest, and really in a way, like just the most easiest, a woman.
0: Of course, Andy Richter is right. There has been, since late night's inception, an unmistakable dearth of women behind the desk. It's not that women have never hosted. But for more than half a century, none has had an extended run on any of the nightly network shows. Joan Rivers did get a show, but she felt she never got a shot. She had a short run on Fox, and then goodbye. Chelsea Handler made a sustained splash on Cable's e-channel, Lily Singh is getting what seems an extended tryout in the really wee hours on NBC. Most notably, Samantha B has made some real noise with her show on TBS once a week. Now, another female star is gaining some traction and great reviews on a streaming service, Amber Ruffin on NBC's Peacock.
4: We were trying to decide what the name should be We were like, oh, what's it going to be? Late night, night owl? Owl birds, bird's nest, owl nest, late nest. (laughs) Just going (laughs) all over the place. (laughs) And then finally, a smart adult was like, the Amber Ruffin show. And I just was like, "I I can do that?
0: We'll get to how late night has undervalued women and diverse voices in a later episode. Maybe change is on the horizon, but... Radical change?
2: You know, everybody's always talking about thinking outside the box. If you want yeah. a successful late-night talk show, you better think inside the box. You better figure out how to make what's inside the box different and original and good, or you're just in a different category, which is fine, but it's just not It's not a late-night talk show.
0: It astonishes me to think that Jimmy Kimmel has now been on longer than all the other active hosts except for Conan. But a good host is hard to find. And when found, they tend to stick around. A few late-night hosts have had second acts. But for the most part, they're like Liam Neeson. They have a very particular set of skills, though they seldom beat anyone to a pulp.
2: I do think it's a great job. And yes, it is a grind, and I love to complain. And when I get together with the other hosts, all we do is complain the whole time. I try not to forget
0: to appreciate it. Be sure to listen and follow Behind the Desk, the story of late night, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to know what you think. Behind the Desk, the story of late night, is a production of CNN Audio and CNN Original Series. It's executive produced by me, Bill Carter, as well as Johnny Kalangas, David Brady, and Kate harrison carmen Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. For CNN Original Series, special thanks to Molly Harrington and Kira Boden-Gologorsky. The producers are Mark Malkoff and Johnny Kalangas. Our editor is Nick Pruer, and our engineer is Neil McDonald. Matt McClellan is... Is our line producer. Special thanks to Amy Antellis, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, John Ehler, and of course, to all the great people who shared their experiences and insights with us.